You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm Simon. I'm Matt. And oh, before we go any further, we've had new music for the last two weeks. And uh, well, I was waiting for Lee to come on so he could tell us who the music was by, since as as it's by, I think, a friend of his. But as soon as Lee's resigned from the podcast, or for the summer at least, he's not going to be able to. So the new music is by somebody called Marcus Nash, who I think is local to down here. Mm-hmm. And I think he does soundtrack work for something. I'm not quite sure. Lee gave me a load of links that I couldn't get to work, so I never got to find out, which is why I wanted Lee to be here to introduce it, but he's not. He doesn't even listen, so he can't write in. No, and he doesn't care either. He's also He told me this person had given his permission for us to use the music, but then he also, subsequent to that, gave me a link to another variation on the theme and said use this one too and i said well have they given you permission and he said no i don't know them i just found <laughs> it on the internet what <laughs> yeah he said maybe you could get in touch with them and ask them <laughs> and i was like that's <laughs> the case with most dot two podcasts though isn't it <laughs> but that's not how it works no <laughs> so no but this one i do believe <clears throat> we do have permission to use and if not well we found it on the internet eh? um and before we get back into talking about the top half of Series 10, um, do either of you two guys know about a book called Red, White and Who? No. Is it the uh, history of Doctor Who in America? Yeah. No, I don't know about it. Well, I've heard of it. Right. I've heard of it. I've heard well, of it on is... some, some Canadian podcast has been talking about it. Oh, have they? Yes. Yeah, I guess they probably would. Mm. Um, well, Stephen Warren Hill, who runs Gallifrey Base, this has been his ambition for the last god knows 10 years to because in if you buy a doctor who guidebook then you'll get all the details of all the british transmissions Mm. right but in britain it's tended to be each episode gets broadcast once and that's it it's gone and it's always been very simple and in america of course They've had a much more interesting Far history, yeah. because not only did the episodes get uh, bought up for, you know, multiple transmissions, they got transmitted at different times in different parts of the country. So it's been Stephen Warren Hill's ambition to put together, basically, a, I suppose, like a bible of how Doctor Who was broadcast and received in America. Mm. So I think the book's divided up into a broadcast history, and also. A history of fandom, too. And this has been... I think it's got about six different authors altogether. Obviously, he's the main one. Actually, I have a list on my phone, so I might as well grab it out and look. Um, It's interesting, isn't it? Because you don't sort of think about 
kind of local aspect of British transmissions because we can think about, we can say, oh, I remember my first story was such and such and it was in this sort of time of year. And you can and you date can, it exactly. You can literally you know. pinpoint it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was the rerun. We have a touch of it in, on what is now ITV because mm. we used to have regional programming there. Mm. So you have like southern television programs that nobody else saw. Yeah. Plus, but, yeah. all those different regions used to show programs at separate times as well. Yeah. Of course, back in the sixties mm. and seventies. Mm. So, so yeah, we have a bit of it like that. Um, Stephen Warren Hill and Jennifer Adams Kelly, plus Nicholas Seedler, Robert Warnock, Janine Fenwick, and John Lavalley. So I was right, six. Oh wow, excellent. Um, but the point is, it's now, well, either finished or as close to finishing as damn it and it's available for pre-order i get it for the history of i wouldn't get it for the the because obviously the the program transmission history probably wouldn't be the reason i'd get it but the history of fandom in america would be really interesting oh yeah Mm. i'm not sure that the i think there's a certain amount of interest for british fans in the history of the broadcast just mm. because of how different it was to us yeah. so although we might not look at specific dates and think oh of course that's interesting that yeah. reminds me of something mm. and i i imagine those parts of the book would be interesting just from an historical perspective of how these things went yes yeah yeah maybe maybe british fans could pinpoint <clears throat> their pirate copies that's, that's true. Well, that's more likely to be from Australia, yeah. though. Oh. oh, yeah, 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 it was. Because America had uh, NTSC, whereas mm. Australia had PAL. So mm. we could have, we could have their videotapes. Right, should we get back into uh, Series 10, then? Okay. Uh, oh, I should say, ATB Publishing is who, Red, White & Who. But, I mean, if you Google Red, White & Who or ATB Publishing, you should be able to find it if you want to get a copy. And we might talk about it more next week or the week after, because they're going to send out review PDFs. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I think we'll take a look nice. at it and um, have a chat about that next time. Um, we did the bottom six last week, and we've got the top five from Series 10 this week. For anybody who didn't hear it last week, I should point out that I <clears throat> did a thing where I worked out what the percentages were. Oh, you're going to explain it again? No, I'm not going to explain oh, okay. it again. People, if people they, want to know how were, it was worked out, easily have caught it last week. Yeah, but I mean, assuming <laughs> that there's anybody listening who didn't, okay. then the maximum any episode could get was a total of sixteen point six seven percent of the <laughs> overall given vote. <laughs> we'll come to that. No, it's crystal clear. It's fine. Before we get into talking about the five episodes, we haven't. Oh, one more thing about. Um, Empress of Mars mm. which came sixth and was the last one we talked about last time and that we didn't mention was the TARDIS returning home all by itself oh yeah that's right yeah yeah well we never did get any kind of an explanation for that I, 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 well, I think I said at the time that maybe they just won't bother maybe it's just a thing yeah but it's you can't it is, just it not is bother a, in, can retros- you? in retrospect no, it was a gap. Ex- in retrospect it felt like a line of dialogue had been clipped from somewhere <clears throat> I mean because it was explaining Cold War wasn't it so yeah, yeah. Mean, you could assume that it's, it's never happened and gone without explanation no so in order to do it you'd have to say either what the new explanation or which of the old explanations it was but it was, was quite impactful because he immediately thought is that it's something to do with Missy yeah well given where it came in the series given what was happening with Missy and given how the episode ended so it wasn't like 
in Cold War, it just happened to get the TARDIS out of the way. Mm. And then at the end of the story, they find it again. In this one, it sort of looks like it happens to get Nardole out of the way, because presumably he hadn't been written at the time that episode was being written. But because of the way it's resolved, with Missy bringing it back, it makes it way more of a thing mm. than if it had just been something like the hats or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you can't brush it aside in quite the same way. Cause it's no, so... so you can't leave it without an explanation. No. Maybe for once, may, I'm not normally the one who says things like this, but maybe it will be explained the Christmas special. Maybe it is <clears throat> something that's left I don't know, see, the Christmas special's too far away after the episode. It needed to be explained by the end of the series if it was going to be. Possibly. I mean, the TARDIS exploding wasn't explained until silence came along the next year. So that's a... That is true, so there is a but for it. you were given a clue at the end of that episode when you had Silence Will Fall. Yeah. This is just, I don't know, it just feels like it, it was something that they put in and then forgot to explain. Mm. So, I don't know, maybe maybe there was an explanation, or maybe somebody just said, oh, the TARDIS does this, let's just leave it at that. You could write to Doctor Who magazine and ask. Yeah, I don't know if Stephen Moffat's going to be doing answering questions anymore. Probably will for yeah, a couple yeah. of months. Um, comments on the series, which we didn't read out last time. <clears throat> Brendan Day says, A solid even season with the best TARDIS team in many a year. Only World Enough and Time and maybe the pilot can be classed as instant classics. But there was much to enjoy in every episode. With the season starting and concluding so strongly, my only true disappointment was with the Monk trilogy, which just didn't hang together as a three-parter. And Gary Davison goes on to say, the Monk Trilogy's resolution didn't really satisfy. Perhaps didn't reach the heights of Series 9, but a great TARDIS team that I don't want to go. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Dylan Reese said, I really enjoyed this season, but I'm not sure it was very good. It looked amazing, but with the exception of the finale, I don't think there were any bona fide classics. Indeed, the writing seemed a little tired. In fact... I would go one further and say the Monster of the Week format is tired. I hope under Chris Chibnall we move away from this and get proper season-long stories. Obviously, we can still see all of time and space within this, but disposing of the need to have the entire story confined to 45 minutes. Oh, Rene Van Belsen, who uh, responded to my... Um, That's a new name. Yes. He said he was a long-time listener, but it was the first time he'd actually answered on one of our Facebook Funny. things. And he he answered to my request for people to put their stories in order of preference. I don't like listicles. Every episode <laughs> has its strong points and things that could have been better. What counts for me is that I was entertained as I was with all of the episodes this season. Peace. Is listicles what basically you've been doing for the last four <laughs> weeks <laughs> obsessively four times a day? Oh, yeah, he probably just follows the Blue Box podcast. He probably doesn't okay. follow me, so he's probably right. missing that. Yeah. I mean, my response to him was, hey, we're Doctor Who fans. This is what we do, right? We make lists. Yeah. And isn't, well, <laughs> how many Blue Box podcasts have been a rundown of a season? Um, Miles Northcott says, overall, a fantastic season, which nicely peaked at the end, or at least at episode 11. Jamie Matheson's episode was the first one to really hit home with everything that preceded it being very good. But Oxygen was excellent and ramped things up nicely. The Monk trilogy started really nicely and got progressively less impressive as it went on. But the return of old friends and foes at the tail end of the season really worked well for a change. 
World Enough in Time is a bona fide classic, and the conclusion to the story, while not without its faults, has more than enough going for it to not bring the average score for the whole two-parter down too much, and beautifully sets up what looks set to be a glorious Christmas episode, and a fine but reluctant farewell to a magnificent doctor. <clears throat> Possibly, he says, the most consistent season since the show returned in 2005. The downside, especially with the latter episodes, has been the way leaked information has spoiled what could have been three standout moments in the finale. But I guess that's just the world we live in. Ho-hum. <clears throat> David Gale says, Underwhelming series, I think, although Capaldi was wonderful as usual. Going to miss him. Made up for it with the finale. My favourite of New Who. Both parts were great. And David Kitchen said, this being about the finale. First good Cyberman story since at least Earthshock, possibly Invasion. Best season since at least season four, or series four. Best season finale since Journey's End. Best performance by a Doctor since series one. Best companion in the new series, full stop. Doctor Who doing Doctor Who. Fun adventures in space and time. We liked it. Yeah, I think it was... Uh... <clears throat> His favourite since Russell T Davis. And okay. that's been true for a lot of people, I think. Yes. Although not me. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm only now getting a perspective on it from distance. So I'm starting, so I can see how my feelings about the season, the series as a whole, is kind of slowly shaping and taking taking form, which I couldn't do when I just watched it. Mm. And I couldn't quite do last week, but now I'm starting to feel... The monk three-parter being a little flatter in the middle and the ending being really good and the beginning being really good and so you know i'm starting to see the peaks and troughs for me mm. and it takes distance for me it always takes distance in another five years i might actually have an opinion about it it's interesting <laughs> isn't it, over time how the well what is the new series to us things slot into place yeah in your whole Mm-hmm. picture of the scene well the way you look at the classic whole. series now mm. whereas when you were growing up with it it was all fluid mm. yeah. and it doesn't settle until it's until it's been replaced by something else mm. you don't really get a picture of what Russell T Davis's Doctor Who was until Stephen Moffat had been there for a couple of years yeah. and so you won't really get a picture of Stephen Moffat's until Chris Chibnall's had a couple of years mm. and then you can look back on it and think god damn it she was still there. <laughs> Only joking, Chris. <clears throat> the story that came in fifth, Steve Herr, who, as you'll recall from last week, was the only one who sent us in episode-specific comments. He's the fourth Blue Box podcaster at the moment. He currently is. Said, underwhelmed on my first viewing, but loved it on my second. The monks were so scarily visualised and the blind doctor was incorporated very cleverly. And on 9.4%, that's Extremis. Mm. I loved Extremis. I didn't mm. think it was perfect. I didn't think it was among Moffat's very, very best. But I really liked it. Yeah, so does I. I had to go back and watch it. Okay, I you're going to be really useful on this No, podcast. I couldn't. No, that one, <laughs> I, that one I couldn't see because I was blind in one eye and it was really dark <clears throat> and it was very sunny outside. So... I well, need to watch. I need to watch it again to actually. If you, if I remember like that experience for the next episode. It may have been quite kind of immersive. Know, yes, me, yeah, it? yeah. Well, extremists was Stephen Moffat <laughs> saying, 
this is my last opportunity to do what is effectively a standalone episode mm. that pushes the envelope of what the series is capable of. So in his mind, it was spiritually a successor to Listen and ha- Heaven Sent. Because both Listen and Heaven Sent said, right, what is Doctor Who capable of doing? Let's see if we can't make that be something more. I love that whole premise that a uh, reconstructed or a simulated doctor is as potent as a real doctor. Mm. If you're going to take a simulated doctor and stick him in your program, he's going to be the one that's going to break the program. Mm. And that, yeah, that is a fantastic premise. I mean, uh, the, the whole idea of are we in a simulation, obviously it's been done to death, but it felt but fresh. But not really ever in Doctor Who, which is kind of the point, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the closest we've got to anything like that has been the Matrix. Couple of monsters a little bit. Yeah, and... Um, Mind the other... robber a little bit. Yeah, but in both of those cases, that was more of a metaphorical thing yes, rather yeah. than an actual thing. Yeah. The, the only other one is kind of Death in Heaven, the bits with Danny Pink, where he mm. doesn't realise at first that he's been uploaded into something. Yeah. And you've had bits and pieces like Donna being in the simulation in Forest of the Dead. But they've never done an entire story, an entire episode based around that concept. Because if you look at Doctor Who, you think, well, you can't. No. Because you've got to have these regular characters coming in from the last episode and then going on into the next episode. And I think it's one of those things where if you're a showrunner on a programme like Doctor Who, You've got to sit down at the start and think, right, what are the things that I can do that haven't been done before? Or what are the things that I can do in a different way to what's been done before? And this is one of those ideas that comes up. If you're doing a sci-fi program, Mm. this is one of those sci-fi ideas that hits you in the face and says, Yabu sucks, you can't do me. And I suppose it takes somebody to sit down and think, well, no, I'm not going to accept Yabu sucks, you can't do me. I'll find a way to do it. Think so of a way to do it. So it's a bit like Stephen Moffat's doing Turn Left. So the whole yeah. thing about Turn Left is it gave Russell T. Davis the opportunity to kill the Doctor, potentially kill the companion, yeah. and put put these characters in real danger because we know that the Doctor can't die because the series is called Doctor Who. So without the Doctor, the series doesn't exist. Yeah. But in this, he's he's managed to create this pocket universe where the Doctor can die, the companion can die. And that's quite... Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's quite as. It's not the same. It's the not, same, but it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not. It's not quite. I see it more as along the line of that rather than the listen, listen, blink, that kind of. Well, those were yeah. Or no, it's rather, Doctor rather Who does a what if. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, that's the. That's the. The the structure. Yes. But the yeah. the format is. What can Doctor Who do mm. that Doctor Who shouldn't be able to do? Yeah. And a single hander with the Doctor. Is what can Doctor Who... Being a time travel series, you think? Yeah, it should. Do you know what? Just on that point, on a point of speculation about Christmas, I'm wondering if... Because we know now that Stephen Moffat likes to say, what can Doctor Who do that Doctor Who shouldn't be able to do? And you know, we all talked about the fact that the Christmas will be It's a Wonderful Life with the two Doctors teaching each other about the benefit of regenerating and carrying on. Mm. Presumably while some plot goes on in the background. I'm wondering if Stephen Moffat might bow out on a Doctor Who episode that doesn't have 
any kind of alien invasion plot and is entirely just these characters doing It's a Wonderful Life. I had a smack in the forehead moment where I suddenly realised, well, of course it's Stephen Moffat talking about him handing over the reins. It's all autobiographical. So I hope. Well, well, even if it's not deliberately, inherently it will be. I think think there'll still be strong consumer pressure to make some sort of conventional story at Christmas. I don't know. I mean, it's a wonderful life. It's a conventional story, but not a conventional. I don't know. There's still, there's always been that pressure to. He's always wanted to write. I don't know. Great Christmas episodes though. It's not always about. I don't know if it has to be because Doctor Who in the 21st century has become so much more about the characters that very often the other plots have been almost sidelined. And look at Hellbent. That is just about the Doctor and Clara. It's not about any... It has Cybermen and Weeping Angels and what have you in it. I just wonder, then maybe sort of additional rules at Christmas that they have have to follow. I'm not entirely sure there would be. I I think as long as... if uh, The way it works is Stephen Moffat says, I've got this idea, and he goes to the head of BBC Drama and says this is what I want to do, and the head of BBC Drama says, yes, or no, or yes, but if you do this, or if you do it this way, I wouldn't be, I'm not saying it's my prediction, it will be this, but I'm just saying, I think there's a fairly decent possibility, it will be that Stephen Moffat has gone to the head of BBC Drama and said, look, why not Mm. do a Christmas story Mm. that is just about the Doctor rather than about the Doctor solving somebody else's problem. Because you've got two Doctors in it, the problem that the Doctor's solving is the other Doctor's problem, and vice versa. Mm. So it's not like there's not a problem being solved. So I don't know, I just... I know what you're saying, Matt, it's like you, you will get the bums on seats episodes, like last year's superhero one was <clears throat> was there to, yeah. to fulfil the Hollywood thing. Mm. Uh, but we've had the time of the Doctor, which is totally self-referential, isn't it? Mm. Time of the Doctor did have quite a lot of monsters in it. I just wonder if there's an additional scrutiny. So well, normally mm. Stephen Moffat will go to the head of the BBC and say, I want to do this episode. And the head of the BBC says, that's fine. For the Christmas episode, I think there might be more people involved in scrutinising it because the know. Christmas schedule is so tightly... Sort but of, also they've used this said that, series... EastEnders has been miserable as sin every Christmas for this might be their well, opportunity to do it. Sherlock, Sherlock doesn't theme it. It's, it's, it's never done a Christmas no, day episode, that. and it has done a Christmas special. Hmm. And again, that was, I mean, that was different. That was sort of period, so it did slot into a kind of a Christmas theme. Novelty. I really like that one. I mean, that mm, was really good. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, I just it just strikes me. I think it's mm. a possibility, and it and it won't just be two guys in a room talking. It will be two guys in a room. Two guys in a room. It will be two guys going out and finding things to influence their conversation. Mm-hmm. And again, coming back to Clara, I'm just it just struck me. We have to see Clara going off to Trap Street. And that has to be the trigger to let the two doctors know that everything has its time and everything dies. I don't know. It just it just struck me that that fits in so perfectly. It can't not be there, can it? 
<laughs> Clara <laughs> goes well, off yeah. and has adventures in the TARDIS, mm. and then it comes her time and she stops. These two guys have been having adventures in TARDIS. It has come their time, and they refuse to stop. So what better way to trigger them understanding that it is time to stop than to see Clara passing by and saying, look, it's time to stop. I don't know. Just, it just strikes me that that fits in so perfectly, thematically, that it would be remiss of it not to be there in some ways. Extremists. Anything else? That kind of speaks for itself. It was a very simple idea, but I loved the way he did it. Mm, I'll tell yeah. you what else I loved about it that I don't think we mentioned in the episode. The religion, it was all about belief. Mm-hmm. It was all about these people believing that they were real when they weren't. Yes. And so what better way to illustrate the theme of belief than setting it in the Vatican? Also, I mean, so a, a, an episode it has relation to is the God Complex, which is also in, set in this sort of fake graphic, place, holographic yeah. fake universe and is about faith and belief. Mm. Except there, faith kills you. Here, faith gets you out of this place, eventually. Well, for most of them, it killed them, of course, because yeah. those suicides were were genuine suicides when it comes down to it, because these people might not have been real people, mm. but they believed they were. Yeah. And to, to take your life, even if you've realised that you're not a real person anymore, it still means that as even a, a fake sentience, your sentience will stop, because it's not like you're repatriated with the real person on the outside, mm. as we discovered, because the Doctor had to send himself an email, didn't he? Yes. I tell you one thing that people have said about that. They've said what we see on screen is the email he sends, hmm. which is not how I understood it. I mean, there's a there's a sense in that a portion of what he sees is from the email. So, because I think what people took it to mean is that he got sent like a basically the equivalent of a video file. Mm. And so what we're watching is the video oh, file right. that he was mm. sent. But that That's doesn't add up. No. Yeah, it's a very big stretch because yeah. you've got bits where Bill goes off and does yes. bits and so on mm. and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, that... No, I think I think that's the conceit that drives the episode. Mm. But, I, but once we get past the conceit, we're just watching a story. We're not watching a video of a story. No, As like we were watching The Matrix and every scene had to have Neo in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Sleep No More, mm. which mm-hmm. is effectively what people were saying. The one that came in fourth on 10.74% of the vote, Steve Hur says, great introduction for Bill, but lacked the wow factor I was hoping for for the first story of the new season. Of course, then it's the pilot. Well, I... It had a wow moment, which was obviously the reveal of the inside of the TARDIS, because mm-hmm. that's the thing that everybody was talking about the next day. Wow, how well did they do that? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it had the quiet wow factor. I think it was solid. You know, I think it was more than solid. Mm. I think it was inspired, but it was inspired in such a subtle way that it looked like it was relatively ordinary Mm. but I think there were things about it that took it beyond the ordinary one of which was the plot because the plot about the pilot although it wasn't really explained who and what and where the pilot came from and it still hasn't been explained now but one of the things about putting that plot in there 
was that unlike in Rose, where it's a story about Autons invading and Rose gets caught up in it, mm. or unlike in Smith and Jones, where it's a story about space rhinoceros is looking for a space vampire that Martha just gets caught up in and so on and so forth with all the other companion stories mm. including Amy in um, the 11th hour where the crack in the bedroom wall happens to be in her bedroom wall mm. so she gets caught up with it even more fundamentally but still it's something that she's got caught up in in the pilot ostensibly it's the same thing bill happens to get caught up in it mm. but because of the way she gets caught up on it it's like an imprinting of the pilot first of all on the girl that she fancies and then on her because of the way it does that i thought it was able to better tell a story about bill than any of those other stories where the companion story has to kind of fight with the plot mm. here the plot was the companion and the plot the A plot was the companion, and the B plot was the companion as well. So it was like the entire thing was about was the companion. It felt like the first episode of a brand new series, not necessarily Doctor Who. But <clears> it felt like, like a pilot episode. It literally yeah. felt like a pilot, pilot episode, yeah. yeah. But I was thinking that it, it wouldn't take a huge leap for that to have been the first episode of a comeback of Doctor Who, well, doing another rose <clears> in some respects. Well, you could have. The the bit in the middle of the pilot where they go off and they're trying to avoid the pilot, trying to catch up with them, mm. that could have been the setup for an entire series, right? Mm. Where every week they land somewhere, hoping that the pilot's not going to catch up with them, have a little adventure, <laughs> and at the end of the episode, the pilot turns up and they jump back in the TARDIS and run off. Like time bandits. Well, a bit like the chase <laughs> as well, obviously, going back to Terry Nation mm. in the 60s. Mm. So you get the episode where they turn up, but they don't really obviously do very much when they get to any of those locations in the chase because they got 10 minutes here and five minutes there. But I mean, as a setup for a series, that works. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, it doesn't take a lot. The whole university thing was just... That was my favourite bit. So so that's for me as well. Yeah, yeah. This episode suffers slightly in my memory, I think, in that I loved... My favourite bits were... The, the university bits, bits with Bill in the university, once the story actually started kicking in, so when they got into the TARDIS and started travelling, that's when I start losing it a little bit with the, with the story, I think. I... It being grounded. But I think it's the still university... good, but that's what I remember about I think the university stuff was the most entertaining bits yeah, of it. Yeah, and But it... most of it was down to we suddenly realised that Pearl Mackey was really, really good. Mm. I and think very, very quickly we realised she was really, really good. But on the subject of the university, it would have been nice if the series had come back and done more there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. i tell you what would have worked really nicely if Pyramid at the end of the world had somehow tied in the university stuff. Yeah. yeah. That lab, for example, if they could have put that in the university mm. and then ended the episode with the Doctor back at home base, mm. somewhere on the campus, mm. yeah. having that issue, that would have almost made that episode feel a little bit more pertinent to everything else in the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but the only other time we come back and have a story that has anything to do with the university is some students looking for a house to live in. Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, those lectures, like the lecture mm. of Star of Oxygen, just... <clears throat> they're just little gold nuggets of who... Yeah, but, but in the, the end, all they served to do was 
introduce a concept or reflect something that was going to be pertinent to the plot without really... That's quite nice. It was nice. It's quite Indiana Jones and it's quite, um, I don't know. Well, the Doctor having an office is quite satisfying. Yeah. The Doctor being kind of slightly domesticated. Hmm. But... I mean, the yeah. obvious thing is, yeah, everyone talks about Shada and that. Mm. But, um... Mm. It would have been nice to have something set there. Mm. So that that had sort of... So if it had appeared, if that had appeared central to a story twice in the series, it would have felt a lot more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more not coherent. A lot, it would have been a stronger idea. Well, it would also have made so one of my one of the things that fell apart slightly at the end of the series was bringing back ideas from the pilot to the end because they hadn't been referred to because mm. they hadn't been even referenced. So maybe. If there were bits in the last episode that kind of that kind of balanced with together, the first, yeah. but just didn't quite. No, it felt like he'd grabbed Stephen Moffat had grabbed a concept from somewhere in the series and sort of thrown it at the story. Whereas obviously it was deliberately set up to happen that way. Yes, but but it did. But it needed to be seeded a bit for me. Mm. Well, I said that when we reviewed it, didn't we? Um, the story that came in. Anything else on the pilot before no. we? The story that came in third, then, is on 11.76%. Well, Steve Hurst says, Another simple, uncomplicated story told that was told really well. This is the Doctor Who my other half loves to watch. And it was Thin Ice, mm. which we all gave a 10, I think. Yeah, I think this I was my favourite. I got into trouble oh. for it, didn't I? Yeah. No, I don't think you did. I think we all gave it. No, I gave it an 8. Are you sure? Thin yeah, ice. I was pretty sure you called what? me a silly boy on yeah, What's wrong with you? <laughs> Oh, you weren't here. I wasn't here. No, no. Okay. The three of us who were here all gave it. Yeah, a 10. and then you yeah. read it out, and yeah, yeah, yeah. If you'd have been here, you would have probably have given it something higher. We Are you saying I'm being influenced it. by Jaya? Yeah, it's like the puppet. Most master. people think that. <laughs> um, I still think it's an eight or nine. I still don't think it's perfect because because there wasn't um, only in as much as not that it was lacking in as much it didn't have the spark that makes me think wow. I did think, wow, in as much as it was so <clears throat> solid, it was pretty much pure historical. But as far as my imagination being tweaked. Yeah, but see, I, yes, I know what you're saying. Mm. And mostly I kind of agree. But sometimes I think, because when you sit down to write something, you sort of set yourself criteria. You're thinking credit where it's due. Yeah, not just that. When you sit down to write something, you have certain criteria. Mm. And I think, A, you've got to fulfil those criteria, but B, you've got to do it in a way that ties them all together. And I don't just mean in plot terms, but I mean in terms of consistency and thematically. Mm. And it did all of that, and it did it in such a subtle way so that it wasn't until after the episode had finished where you were kind of picking things out and going, oh, God, that really makes sense of that bit. And that Mm. line of dialogue there really makes sense of this line of dialogue here, where it's not that one foreshadows the other, but that thematically everything that's said and done in that episode is all based around the same central idea or set of ideas. It was an episode that didn't need to rely on anything high concept and it didn't need to rely on fireworks. So there are episodes in this series like Knock Knock... Or, well, even like extremists, or which extremist, relies on or, the reveal, or oxygen that relies on these kind of these kind of dramatic twists, all these sort of 
skews or Big another moments. way of mm. telling a story. This just told a story mm. and it didn't need that because it was telling it so well. Mm. And it was a really nice, not nice, nice is awful. It's a really satisfying setting. and Yeah, I think that's the word, and satisfying. I was, I was watching it and it was almost like it was a high wire act. I was watching it, waiting for it to collapse, waiting for the compromise to come, waiting for something to happen that made me think, oh, this is like... Um, this is like the Christmas, uh, the next Doctor or something like that, because that's what I think of when I watch this, is the next Doctor, similar setting. But the next Doctor collapses in the end. It doesn't work in the end. This mm. one worked all the way through. And not only end, did it work, it just threw in things like the scene on the... The scene where they're laying out the shit in the open air. Yes. Yeah. In the sort of... In the factory. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A scene that didn't need to be there, but was just so gloriously good that it just made you sit up and say, not only does this person care about what they're writing about, they care about how they're writing about it. Mm -hmm. And it just, yeah, I think satisfying is the word. It was just immensely satisfying. I don't think it's like the best story, and it's certainly not the most spectacular story. Mm -hmm. And it's not one that you go out of series 10 thinking thin ice that was the one it's so third is probably about right there's so many times in this series where it felt like that it'd been given room to breathe Mm. Mm. which is probably down the simplicity you're talking about yes possibly like you say there were scenes that could go in which didn't necessarily need to be there but they were there to be the the icing on the cake you know the little it felt at times that Stephen Moffat was stepping back from some of these stories Mm. that he wasn't he wasn't not in control but he he wasn't paying so much attention to he wasn't pushing them into making every story like flow then you look but then you look back at Empress of Mars and what we're talking about the TARDIS disappearing Mm. that somewhere along there something something disappeared that explained why the TARDIS went yes there was plenty of space in that story for that. Mm. So I think I think it felt sometimes like Stephen Moffat was stepping back, and sometimes I think that's a good thing, and sometimes it's a bad thing. So mm. there mm. were gaps. Through Eaters the of Light is another one where it's just entirely the brought-in author's own vision. Yeah, yeah, mm. with a bit of Stephen Moffat plugged onto the end. Yeah, but the mm. story itself is just, and oftentimes Stephen Moffat will do a series where everything in that series has some kind of effect on the finale. Mm. So Series 5 especially. You go through Series 5 and there isn't, I don't think, an episode in that entire series that doesn't have some kind of effect, either tonally or in terms of foreshadowing or in terms of laying down rules that will become important later, all those kinds of things. So everybody in Series 5 was obviously told, right, I don't care what your plot is, as long as you include this element mm. and this element, so this felt this felt to me a bit like Stephen Moffat was demob happy and just yeah. just letting his writers get on with it mm. and maybe fixing something in the middle with the the monks thing. And I think maybe that's the, why the, the, the results the, the results were from that were you got individual some really strong for me really strong individual feeling stories like he's just polite and this one that felt pure and untampered with yeah. and it felt like really satisfying i think there's stories that when they're in the dwm polls they're yeah. going to hit a, per- a certain space and they'll probably stay there and they won't go up or down actually if there were target books of them they would be yeah some of the favorites yes yeah mm. yeah mm. but the other side of this is i think 
it's not quite as a series as a whole it's not quite as satisfying as some of Stephen Moffat's other ones and there are some bits where you just think oh you brought that bit back or this bit doesn't quite make sense there are bits when it feels like it's treading water yeah yeah sort of uh, in terms of having a narrative trajectory certainly mm. and it, it yeah there are bits where the series feels like it stops dead yeah for somebody to come in and do something yeah. and then maybe starts up again afterwards. And the way the Missy stuff was kept separate from the stories, mm. you but, know, only serves to sort of reaffirm that, that but, it kind of, it stops and starts. But Thin Ice was one of the, one of the episodes in this series that doesn't suffer from that. I think it, it actually, it actually um, it's entirely... improves because of that. Yeah. I think it's better than it would have been if it was made in the last series or the series before. And I tell you what, the story that comes in second actually probably suffers from that and could have been better if it hadn't been. It's oxygen. It's got 13.5% of a possible 16.67, so it's getting up there. <laughs> hey, I did this, so I'm sticking with it. Okay. Steve Hur says, near-perfect scary Doctor Who with a great shock ending. I really hope Jamie Matheson gets to write for Chris Chibnall. <clears throat> if you'd shown me the synopsis, if I'd seen a full synopsis of this, I probably would have been fairly lukewarm about it. Well, I I think it's the execution. I think it's I think the script is exceptionally well written. I think the direction is extremely well handled. I think where it fits in the season is completely at odds with everything that happens both before and afterwards. What, in as much as Bill's? Bill's character mm. in Oxygen is the character of somebody who's on their first trip. Mm. And then where the Doctor Falls goes with um, the pilot coming back for Bill, mm. I, I don't think there's any way you can look at Oxygen and say that it's not a mistake to have Bill going through what she does in Oxygen because surely... The pilot would have come for her then. Turned up, yeah. I know it was in the end about, oh, you cried my tear that I left you with so I could find you, which actually she cried at the end of World Enough and Time already. But there's no way she would have gone through oxygen without shedding that, that tear. Do you know what I mean? Would the pilot have been aware of, oh, she's going to get out of this. She's going to get out of this. And of course, the time it turns up is where she's not going to get out of it. Mm. Hard to say, but you know what I mean. Yeah, Thematically uh, speaking, yeah. there's no way you can put Bill through what she went through in Oxygen without it looking like somebody's not keeping their eye on the ball yeah. when you mm. get to the end and the pilot comes to save her. So, but like, but like Thin Ice, taken taken entirely separately. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really strong. Yeah, and again, it it's it's suggesting that Stephen Moffat stepped back from it. And, yeah, and. So the, those issues, presumably, they are showrunnery issues. Yeah, yeah. Quite tied together. But I, I agree. I think this was really. Well, the other, quite, I surprised myself. Really by lovely, putting it top directed. Because I couldn't think of another episode that kind of just really. Yeah. I think I watched it two or three times. In the end. Well, the, the other issue, just on that, that people brought up with oxygen, or that was an issue with Empress of Mars, is she goes through all this stuff in oxygen about you know wearing your space helmet, vacuum, all mm. this kind of stuff, being able to breathe. <laughs> Then in Empress of Mars, she sees a few flames and just tears her helmet off without yeah. a second thought. Yeah. Hmm. Now, yeah, okay, Nardole might do that, but Bill might should have been thinking back to oxygen and be thinking, well, hang on, 
I see the flames, right? So presumably there's oxygen there. But I want to make damn sure first, because look mm. what happened last time. Yeah. So, you know, so, yeah, but outside of anything else that happens in the series, entirely on its own, oxygen is a really good episode. Yeah. And the direction is good. It's probably mm. the best oh, direction yeah. since Deep Breath, I think. Well, and or give or take Rachel Talalay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Rachel Talalay and Ben Wheatley are probably the two, mm. the two standard, the the two that I would recognise as directors. And this one, I can't remember who directed this one. Um, I think Oxygen was um, Charles Palmer. Okay. From, okay. from Human Voyage Nature. Yeah. Yes. Did he do? I think you did Voyage of the Damned as well. Oh, could have done. Because his dad yeah. was in it. Jeffrey Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Could be. I'm not sure. No, yeah. I think. No, I think Roger the Dams is Richard Strong. Oh, I can't remember no, now. I would, five years ago, but, I would have But anyway, the the, the, uh, the 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 running out of oxygen, fainting bit was really well done. The thing that let down oxygen slightly for me was that whereas Thin Ice incorporated its theme in all sorts of ways, many of which were quite subtle, Oxygen incorporated its theme in all sorts of ways that were all really on the nose. And it was, by the end of the episode, it was a bit like you were being beaten over the head by the message. It's a bit of a 2000 AD strip in that respect. A bit, um, yeah, just mm. read. Was it, yeah. Yeah. It, on, the, on the edge of satirical. Mm. Yeah, and this was... Uh, which, But then it had some other glorious, glorious moments, like when you see the suit mm. working by itself. Mm. And that's a very... You know what I said last time about writers will incorporate Stephen Moffat's ideas yeah. in their scripts for him, not because he's told them to, but just because they're writing them for him and they want to. So the bit where you see the suit working by itself, you don't realise at the time, that's your clue to how the story is going to mm-hmm. be resolved because it's the suits, not the cadavers inside them. You think it's yeah. a story about zombies, but actually he's given you the answer before you even see any of the zombies. Yeah. That's, that's what impressed me was that I would be, you know, you think about something like the Vashta Narada, which is, in, again, is a concept alien or something like that. Mm. But, but this is literally just suits, robotic yeah. suits. Mm. What else did Jamie around. Matheson do? Did he do Mummy and the Orient Express and, and Flatline. Flatline? And The Girl Who Died. Okay, so a pretty good hit rate so far. Yeah, I'd say so. so. Yeah, bring him back. Yeah, but if it's a writer's room, he's not going to be a writer in a writer's room, presumably, so... That could be the last time he writes for Doctor Who for a, for a while, at least. Mm. I mean, we don't know. We don't know that it is going to be a writer's room. No, no that's not confirmed. No, and even if it is a writer's room, it could be three people, and they could be Toby Warehouse, Jamie Matheson, and I don't know Peter Harness. Yeah. who all get their names on three scripts in the next series or something. Yeah. So it could be. Who knows? Mm. But it's not likely to be. No. Um, anything else on oxygen? Nope. Right, well, obviously there's only one story left. And on 14.84% of the vote, which is only less than 2% off the absolute maximum we could have got, this was at the top of an awful lot of people's lists. Mm-hmm. It's obviously the two-part finale, World yes. Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls. And yeah. we've only just reviewed both parts of that in a total of three and a half hours worth of podcasts a fortnight ago. So yes. I suggest we wrap it up and go home. <laughs> <laughs> um Steve Hur says, my heart just kept getting broken over and over. 
Bill's cybernization, the Doctor's where I fall speech, but most of all by the looks Missy gave the Doctor when he asked her to stand with him. Look, I've rewatched the second half again. Hmm. Well, I've rewatched the whole thing again since we spoke about it, and I've got to say, I stand by all the criticisms I made of that second half. It just felt like all the characters stopped being who those characters were so they could stand in this place for two weeks and become victims. It was exceptionally entertaining. It just didn't pull my heartstrings that last episode, even the second time around, because I was just too busy wondering what happened to the Doctor, what happened to the Master. It stayed with me. I I mean, I definitely um support you in your criticism of the masters or what what on earth they were doing for that whole time flirting yeah i guess they, so they yeah self-absorbed not. yeah well that's kind of a perfect i mean it's it's the the opposite of a two doctor story so it's a two master story and what's mm. what's what would the opposite of what the two doctors would do in a two doctor story they're inactive they're kind of like lazing around mm. so this is exactly what the masters would do is just hang about waiting for something to happen. Mm. But I don't buy that. I think the masters would be doing something. They'd just be doing the opposite of what the doctor was doing. Mm. I just couldn't buy it. I, which is, um, it's not a huge complaint. It's a niggle because given what the episode is, Mm. given what the story is, it sort of essentially basically works. And it has such great moments throughout it. Mostly John Sim. But and mm-hmm. Peter Capaldi and yeah. definitely Pearl Mackey. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. and Matt Lucas, all five of them. Mm. Michelle Gomez as well. They all have great moments. Yes, John Sim probably has the best. Yes. In both episodes for me. Mm. I mean, Mr. Razor is really is really quite a distinct I mean, that's a distinctive character for me. But a bit, I just... a bit like a bit like Derek Jacobi was distinctive as both Professor yeah. Yana and yeah, yeah. the Master. That was the genius of Derek Jacobi's portrayal, and I think the genius, and I think John Sims has sort of you know carried on that tradition. Going by a sort of small fraction of circumstantial evidence, even though people were expecting John Sim to be in that episode, even fans who were looking for where John Sim would yeah. be. I still think probably fewer than 20 or 25% of people realised it was him until much later in the episode. It was really obvious. Well, I'm not, I th- I'm not well, bragging. I'm just saying, it seemed quite obvious to me. But as soon as I heard his voice, I thought, oh, there he is. And his eyes. Mm. I'm glad. I'm happy for them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I hadn't spotted it. Yeah, yeah. But but like we said, it did work on two levels. Even if you did work out who it was, you thought, hey. Yeah, and you could watch the performance. Yeah. And you yeah, could watch yeah. the clues. Mm. And you could, yeah, there was a tension in waiting for the reveal to come. And mm. there were in-jokes as well. For, yeah, many. If you, if for people that knew it, then, yeah, you could tell that they'd snuck in sort of bits of lines of dialogue and bits of performance. Mm. And there were lots of I, don't, I can't think of anything specific there were there were a number of instances where not even in that scene where he's got the mask on top of the mask but there were other instances of him there would just be he'd say like a couple of lines and the second one would be uh, something that suggested when you find out who I am mm. something like that there were yeah, just lots of little jokes yeah, Mr. Yeah. Razor it was all there 
Is it? What? It, it is. It's definitely. It's got to be there, and it raises too close to master. I mean, it's only what. I don't know. She's see, a few letters around, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's suggestive of master. Hmm. If you say it <laughs> quickly enough, then you get master. It's not an anagram, but then that's a little no. bit too. I mean, the, well, the Mister Razor, yeah, as opposed to just Razor yeah, yeah, by yeah. itself, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes, or a bit like Magister. Well, um, <clears throat> what else about? That that we haven't talked about already because I mean we only did it a couple of weeks ago. I mean, in, we did in, talk about it a lot. What, the, now, who is it said on online? I think it was a writer of some sort who said, "Oh, we just paused it and we saw a flash of orange between the Doctor and the Master or Missy when they shook hands to say goodbye." Oh, I think the point of that. Oh, it could be, and that would be the... Uh, he gives her extra regeneration energy to save her at the end. I, if there's anything in that, that Stephen Moffat or telling the production team yeah. to just put something in that the next person can use if they want to. Like, like RTD and the... Um, the ring. Pfizer Venice thing. Sorry? Pfizer Pompeii. Pfizer Pompeii, sorry. Yeah. How do you mean? Well, in, in as much as he passed it on, Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I think it's more like the ring in um, Last of the Time. Oh, okay. Where the ring, the master dies, gets burnt, but his ring survives, and of course, there's DNA. Far of Venice wouldn't last very long, would it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of hissing. Yeah. Um, you brought something up then, and I was going to. The Cutty Sark burnt down whilst it was on the water, and then they rebuilt it, and they rebuilt it and put it on the top. They're taking it out of the water and put it on the top of another building so it looks like it's in the water it's a big glass building okay isn't that ironic <laughs> that a boat burns in the water and then they take it out of the water to look after it come on it's got a Doctor Who <coughs> connection it's dimensions in time setting of dimensions yeah, yeah, in time yeah, yeah. But... Um, that bit where he shakes her hand at the end or she shakes his hand before mm. she goes off with Sim yeah where it looks to all intents and purposes like she's going off to join Sim but she shows him the dagger, so he kind of Does know. She? I think so. Or the see, that's really ambiguous. It's all ambiguous. Well, yes, it? you also don't know if she was transferring stuff to him, regeneration energy to him to keep him alive a bit longer, or vice versa. So that's see, this, Stephen Moffat, as I'm often saying will let you know in lines of dialogue that don't appear to be relevant exactly what's happening. Mm. But in what he actually puts on screen, the hybrid being a great example. To me, the hybrid was perfectly well explained in that episode. Absolutely nailed on. I didn't have any doubt at the end of that episode what the hybrid was. But then you come out of it at the other end and the big complaint is, why didn't they tell us what the hybrid was? This episode, or this two-parter, but specifically this second episode, he actually relaxes on that a bit. And actually, he's just this really weird double thing of he finishes everybody's storyline, but does it in such a slightly ambiguous way that every single one of those characters can get picked up by somebody else if somebody else wants to. But if nobody else wants to, it's a final enough ending that, for example, Nardol goes off to die. Mm. He's been told the Cybermen are going to catch up with you before you can do anything about it. And then he gets the line, I'll think of something. 
Yes. Which is, if somebody else wants to pick up Nardo, there's an out. But if, but the way the scene plays is he goes off to die. It's, Missy, yeah. we see her dying. So maybe there's this bit where she's given a bit of extra regeneration energy. So even though the Master kills off all her regeneration energy, maybe she blinks her eyes open and she's got a regeneration of the Doctor's. John Sim, it's made perfectly clear, goes downstairs to regenerate into Missy. But even though it's made perfectly clear, A, we don't see it, and B, there's enough ambiguity in the fact that she doesn't remember, because it's a two masters thing, that if somebody else wants to pick that up and have him regenerate in somebody else, it can happen. All these things are left open, but they're all closed off. They're all closed off in the dialogue, Nardole, you go up five floors, but you're still going to die because the Cybermen are going to catch you. But then there's an out. So that, Missy so, dies, but then there's an out. So I think this is what's, I think this is what's clever about Stephen Moffat. Not the intricacies of the plots or the way he connects things together. It's the way that he gifts things to creative people who are watching. So we've all written, we've all written stories for an entire book about a fairly, in the, in the scope, grand scheme of Doctor Who, a fairly minor character in Doctor mm, Who. Mm. And part of that is Stephen Moffat leaves things open. He leaves gaps. He leaves space for creative people. George to Lucas in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Except, mm. yeah, yeah. I think but it's he doesn't leave in this book. space. He leaves the possibility of space. <laughs> <laughs> Which is space. I mean, he, well, he, yeah, leaves, no, it's not, though, he leaves it? room, room for creativity. He knows how... Not just fans, but I mean, creative viewers watch watch television. He leaves he leaves things hanging there to to click on. He does it in a way that it doesn't feel like there are things yeah. hanging. It almost there. gives the impression of backstory. Yeah, so yeah. Steps to the characters without actually adding depth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which mm. is why you'd assume Stephen Moffat would be really popular with with authors and writers. But as it turns out that some writers feel anxious about 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 his sort of his sort of way of kind of you know leaving fishing lines there. Well, they like to have the eyes dotted and the t's crossed. Yes, yeah, which is a shame. And irony is that he probably does that more than most writers. He does both. He plays the long game. I think he does both at the same time. I mm. think I think he knows how to write in such a way that feels satisfyingly coherent and closed if you want to sit like that mm. but he also knows how to within that to create space ambiguities threads that you can also pick out mm. so um so the the silurian sontaran detective series of course they're not going to do that but that's there as a sort of a, you know, potentiality as a, as a space for more stories. Should somebody, and I don't think he's leaving, he's leaving these things potentially for Chris Chibnall or for future Doctor Who writers. I think he's leaving it for people either to physically write something <clears throat> or to use their imagination to fill mm. it in. Mm. I certainly don't think his number one priority is the fan fiction. <laughs> No, but I think he. I think he recognizes. He recognizes that's a certain lifeblood to the series. Yeah, I think. yeah. And I think. I, think I, don't, he I don't know if it's there intentionally, but he just. It's just a nice side effect of what he does. Yeah. And I don't think he thinks that the fan is the most important viewer. I think he knows how to appeal to. And I don't think it's even the fan. I think it's the creative viewer. I think it's the the person watching who has enough imagination. To he knows that 
that by leaving these threads, he's creating a, a text or a story that will be debated and talked about. And it has been, because we yeah. we've had arguments, or you've had arguments on Facebook about the hybrid. And the reason you're having arguments about the hybrid isn't because Stephen Moffat created something and then explicitly explained it and shut the door on it. It's because he left these these kind of threads, slight threads hanging. It's like you say about Donnie Darko, is that the yeah. director's cut, I can't bear because it explains everything. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I'm enjoying David Lynch at the moment yeah. is because David Lynch, like a bastard, doesn't explain things. He willfully leaves these things open. So you spend the next 25 years, as as has happened since the last time he made Twin Peaks, you spend the rest next 25 years like in your head making connections, in your head writing. And Stephen Moffat does this more than Russell T. Davis, I think. Stephen Moffat... Oh, it does it more than anybody. Stephen Moffat knows that that, uh, to create a legacy, you don't create stories that beginning, middle and end. You create stories with these these wriggle room. And that's the complaint, isn't it? Because Doctor Who basically always has dotted its I's and crossed its T's. And, And it's always going to sort of... There are some people that are always going to be disturbed by by ambiguity or a, a degree of a degree of absence of obvious clear-cut explanations and sometimes they're disturbed and there are clear-cut explanations as you point out on facebook yeah but sometimes sometimes obviously to some people they're not clear-cut and to well and to some, them and to you'd, some you'd hope, they're you'd hope they'd say apply for their own agendas you know yeah yeah, yeah. and you'd yeah. hope that they would th- think good it's not it's not a clear cut answer. Let's come up with an answer. But they don't. Is there any final thoughts about the series then that we haven't expressed as we've gone along? Uh, do, um, Bill Um Well, A, I think we will see her at Christmas in one way or another. Even if it's just some kind of dream thing like we had with Amy, we'll see Bill at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, one year companion. Is it great that we're left wanting more? Is it disappointing that she won't get a second series? Assuming she doesn't get a second series, but I think that's a pretty good bet. Don't. Maybe I'm old enough to think, yeah, that's fine. It does feel fine to me. I don't feel like it's it's I don't I do think it's lacking because she was so successful in it. And because because I will say she fared better in the first two thirds of the series. Yeah. But I think she was better as an actress than the part. Because I never because seeing after the first two or three episodes I was going she got the potential to be the best companion of the new series. By the end of the series I'm thinking, well the actress had the potential to be the best companion of the series but the character never seemed to get involved always seemed to be either a witness or a victim doesn't he about and maybe that's why she needs a second series to sort of maybe but if she's just a shame to have a a gay person of color who who gets one series And it just is starting to feel like, like yeah. But as long as these these 
slightly progressive characters in for one series and then wasn't so Danny, though, was it? it Danny was just the way, I mean, this is a series that, that may never have happened. So no, no, I don't think it was, but it's still a shame. I mm. think it's still, it's still she deserves she deserves well, she a rose length run or a. She was never intended to be a gay character at the start, and obviously, what happened there is because Stephen Moffat said when he started writing the pilot, she was straight, but it yeah. wasn't working, so he changed it and made her a gay character, and then all of a sudden it worked. Because obviously what was happening is that when she was a straight character, she was getting chased all over the universe by a bloke, and it felt like a story about yeah. a stalker. Yeah. yeah. To, be, to be clear, so d- change it to two women, and all of a sudden that aspect is diminished such that you don't even notice anymore. So I'm not suggesting that she's got a, a single... She's only in one season because of those things. I'm saying that oh, yeah, it's no. a shame that... I mean, with Donna, but... with Donna, I thought one se- series was good... And that was fine. Mm. And I probably had enough of Donna after one series. And actually, it felt quite satisfying that she had one series. Mm. With Bill, I don't feel that. I feel that, that she has the potential. And in fact, it would improve the character and improve the series to have her having See, a longer run. I think if you get to the end of the first series and she's been through all that and she hasn't started developing into somebody who's no longer a witness or a victim... If you do that in a second series, then you're changing the character as opposed to developing it, because surely that development should have happened a bit sooner. Mm. So maybe not on that count. And on the other count, about representation and having a character in the series, sometimes it's good to have that one perfect expression of it rather than diluting it. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shame that they've done it with every, every black character. Every black companion well, has had a very limited. Two, yeah. Well, Mickey was in two series. Yes, but the equivalent screen time of of one. Yeah. And Danny Pink, and Martha. But that's just been a coincidence of how things have worked yes, out. Yes, it's just an unfortunate coincidence, I think. But... Yeah, but I don't think again anyone with an agenda will probably say it was conscious. But yeah, I don't think it was but unless con- you have an agenda, you can't look at that. And no, say it's anything I, other than a coincidence, no, and then you've it, just got to let it lie. Yeah. It's a coincidence. It wasn't an agenda, but it's still unfortunate. I think. Yeah, no, I don't know. In this mm. country, I think to say that you possibly are taking an influence from fandoms from other countries where some of these things are still more of an issue than they are here, because yeah. in this country, in media, it's less of an issue. I always give the example of Hollyoaks just because it's teen programme that's on five times a week. But Hollyoaks, there's so much representation of everything that it's entirely normalised. Yeah, yeah. So if you're watching... So what I'm essentially saying is, in a specific programme, you can't possibly hope to be the representation of everything. But as long as the media as a whole is doing it... And I think if you take Hollyoaks as one extreme... And I don't know what would be the other extreme, but the most impossibly highbrow British programme ever. I think across that spectrum, you're getting the representation. So Doctor Who doesn't need to take that burden on its shoulders. So to say that the coincidence is unfortunate is only to isolate Doctor Who from the rest of television. I think well. I think that's that's not what that's not what people in the industry have been saying. They've been saying that there's a there's an issue with representation 
in the BBC and on television in Britain in general. I, and so that's... But I think um, that's a perception rather than the actuality well, I mean, that's, that's, sometimes. That's, that's, that's what they're saying in the were, industry. If these actors weren't well, getting the parts, I'd say, is an issue, but they are getting the parts because they're bloody brilliant. Yeah. You know, um, and, and surely come to the end of the series, did you did you think about what colour her skin was? I certainly didn't. In in uh, the pyramids episode, even though I didn't like the the the, uh, the actress who was playing the scientist, by the end of the episode, I, I I wasn't even thinking about how tall she was. But it's not just about it's about yeah. But are you casting. counting? This is the thing. That's the question. Are you counting and saying, well, it's only happening for this long? But the fact is, it it's happening. Okay. I don't know. I think I think. Well, I mean, again. We're three white men talking about representation, which is yeah. always a little bit, a little bit tricky. Well, the thing is, you have to overrepresent in order to normalise, but by the same token, you can't overrepresent to such a degree that you upset the balance. Yeah, you have to try and find a balance. And I don't know, you know, if you'd have made Rose Black and Mickey White, then. The, the, the issue of balance might have been there at that point, but Rose being white and Mickey being black is the issue of balance a question at that point. Mm. It's like, what can you do? As long as you, as long as you do represent, you know, as long mm. as you don't ignore your responsibilities altogether, I think you can be, it can be a complaint if you ignore your responsibilities altogether, but as long as you're not ignoring your responsibilities, then if the representation's there mm. and it's a question of degree, everybody's going to have a different opinion on what the amount of degree e- should equally be. Equally right? the same thing, things, similar things being said about the whole female doctor issue that, that people are saying, oh, the only reason they're going to have a female doctor is because, you know, people are saying, oh, now's the time to have a female doctor and that shouldn't be the reason. And no, no, the fact, the reason there should be a female doctor is because it just happens that a female actor comes along who is of that standard. Well, no, well, I think in terms of representation, the reason it's important we have a female doctor now is because we never have done. Mm. And so that is one area of representation that the series hasn't yeah. found a balance. Yeah. So I think it's a valid point yeah, po- to say positive, positively we should have a female doctor now. Is yeah. a, and is then from that point on, it's not just, you it's, know, it's a level playing field. It's not about yeah, colour right. blindness or gender blindness. It is about you know, actively recruiting people from, you know, mm. from places you wouldn't normally see people recruited from. See, the, I think you come to problems, to give an example from politics, I think one of the parties, I think the Conservative Party, at one point said, we need to have X percentage of female M- MPs. And they actually took MPs out of their seats and gave them female candidates instead because they wanted to get X percentage. Right. Whereas, in truth, it should have been... As long as the representation is there to enough of a degree that it's not an issue, mm. you don't actually need to hit a quota mm. because by hitting a quota, you could actually be damaging. I mean, mm. I mean, it's fine to have a it's fine to have a percentage to aim for. So, in, in universities, say they have yeah. they have a, a quota of students from disadvantaged schools, and that sounds like so. You say fifty percent of students from disadvantaged schools. It sounds like you're going to get a, be washed by students that shouldn't be there. But actually, all it means is they spend more money in getting the message out to these schools that the university exists. 
Yeah, same, yeah, with, yeah. same with MPs. All that means is they spend more time trying to encourage mm. people to be active in constituencies who are female, yeah. who are black, and then they get them, you know, it's not about through a sort of, them, it's about through a more, na- you, yeah, you create the foundation for a natural process mm. yeah. rather than trying to impose an unnatural solution. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know, and I think in television, there's an element of that. Yeah. Where you've got a, and to a degree, and I suppose it's a different thing, but sometimes you've got to accept that you've won a battle, even if the war is still ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the series won a battle this year, maybe. Yeah, yeah. In those terms. Yeah, it was good. I just think, you know, you could keep on fighting. <laughs> oh, yeah, and absolutely. I don't mean I'm still, stop I'm fighting. Still, I'm I just... still not convinced that she's gone. I'm still, I'm still wondering if, if Chibnall might. You know, Chipman might might tweak what he's writing and accommodate Bill because yes. she's been so well. I mean, I don't know. In the bubble that I'm in, she's been really popular, but she's she's you know clearly been a very successful presence in this series. But then there, there's been a handful of people on my timelines who've been. No, I'm not impressed with her. Mm. Okay. I'm just gonna. How can you not be? She's mm. just so bloody good. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But, you know, well, to each his own and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I was going to say, right, let's until next week. But before I do, I've just heard the high price of parking today. It's the new big finish. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From John Dorney. He had this idea ages ago. And he mentioned the title like a couple of years ago. I've had this idea for a big Finnish play called The High Price of Parking. And everybody just went, WTF, John. And now it's turned up. So it's sort of, well, it's set after season, is Ace and Mel. Right. Oh, okay. So big Finnish have um, managed to massage a situation where Mel comes back on the TARDIS while Ace is travelling. So you've got um, Bonnie Langford and Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred all travelling together. And this is a story with those three. Um, It has this lovely humour, but it's probably not quite funny enough to be as impressive as it perhaps could have been. But apart from that, it takes a couple of really odd ideas that you'd never think would be in Doctor Who and makes them a perfect fit. And it slots in beautifully next to something like Paradise Towers. Mm. So I think if you're the kind of person who can appreciate season 24 for everything but its production, then this will really appeal, frankly. Okay. Um, I don't really want to say what the story is, because even though some of the twists happen quite early in the story, it was great to sit down with it. And just have this title, The High Price of Parking, and not know a thing about what it was going to be. So I don't want to spoil it for anybody else. But, um, well, John Dorney's always worth listening to. And I would definitely recommend this. Cool. Not his best, but certainly, you know, not a disappointment. Can you kind of see why he wanted to make it happen? Yeah. Yeah, for exactly the same reason. Not that I do much creative writing, but whenever I do, it, he does exactly the same thing as what I would 
or he has the same starting point as I would sort of have, if you know what I mean. Mm. A sort of, well, I'll tell you after we turn off. <laughs> Podcast gold. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, look, I can't remember what's happening next week, but something, no doubt. Um, we'll probably talk about Doctor Who. Probably. There'll yeah. almost certainly be a Doctor Who theme. <clears throat> but until, unless anybody's got anything else. No, surprised to see Derek Jacobi coming back to Big Finish. Well, not coming back, but doing some Masters. Oh, he, but he loves that sort of thing. Yeah. He's always on the off. Like, I was pa- trying to figure out the chronology in my head, though. I mean, hmm. that's me assuming he grew up as a human. I don't know why. I don't know why. There's a line in the story just... that says he grew up as a human. Okay. But, but that, that could, could be an implanted memory. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Sounds good, though. Yeah. I mean, that's very easy to sidestep. I mean, that's John Smith yeah. in Human Nature. Thorny grew up as a human, yeah. but patently he didn't. And if the, if it does contradict Utopia, it's still Derek Jacobi coming back as yeah. the master. Absolutely. So yeah. who cares? Yeah, yeah. They've got the opportunity. They're not going to say, actually, we've been thinking about it, Derek. It just doesn't fit with the continuity. Lee would be really annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so we've decided not to go with you. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll try and get John Sim instead. And if it takes us 15 years... Yeah. And, you know, we lost Derek Jacobi in the meantime. Well, that's the continuity. But, yeah, no, it fits, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Whatever story he told about where he grew up in Utopia, that's a memory that could just easily have been planted on him. Mm. Yeah. Right. In that case, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.